0: Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone.
1: back to the Wall Street Skinny with Kristen and Jen, the podcast that is all about your path to a career on Wall Street. Guys, I'm so excited for this podcast today because I finally get to ask all the questions that I've been dying to.
0: Uh, you mean you get to exact revenge upon me for last yep. week when I got to kick back and make you do all the heavy lifting with baking? Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, Kristen, have you been surviving on your end this week? I know this has been an insane week for both of us. Yeah.
1: Well, so my daughter got a probably got a concussion on Friday, so that was oh fun. God. Um, you know, thankfully my sister-in-law is an ER doctor, so I can message her cuz if you call your doctor, they're like, "Go to the ER." And so I of messaged course. her. And she's like, "There's nothing they can do. Just Don't don't do that. So uh, and then I thought she might have COVID, which as a mom, like is its own level of shit show because my husband is traveling and our nanny won't come when the kids have COVID. So being sick, I could handle solo momming with three kids. Just no, just just no. Oh it's, God. Uh, it's been yeah.
0: crazy here too. Yeah, we've got one who had strep and croup. <laughs> and like there's some magic formula where kids only get these dread diseases on Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. When it's like, oh, either you can go to urgent care on Sunday mm-hmm. morning or just like see what happens. Yep. So it was it was just a disaster between getting him to the doctor, then trying to get the antibiotics. Oh, because God. We live in the modern era where antibiotics are not readily available at all pharmacies. So you have to like, you have to like seek out a pharmacy. I swear to God, I spend less time showing houses than I do driving around to all the different Walgreens and CVS's Mm -hmm. and Publix's in Charlotte trying to find out who has Augmentin or Amoxicillin on a given week. Um, Yeah. So that's been fun. And my in-laws are in town um, from, (laughs) they live in Switzerland. So we've got... Uh, one set of in-laws living with us. And tonight is my, so my husband's dad remarried. So we've got his, his mom's birthday at our house today nice. with his dad and his stepmom and my entire family coming. So we've got everyone we're hosting at our house. We're going to have, we're definitely ordering food. Cause I can't, I can't, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> I just no. Can't. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and we are having my favorite cake, which is from Publix. Publix has the best bakery by the way. Like Charlotte has a lot of like wonderful, beautiful mom and pop bakeries that all do this like gorgeous stuff. I'm sorry, but give me a public sheet cake and I'm, I'm a happy, happy woman.
1: I'm excited for that. We spent $175 on a bunny cake for Charlotte this past weekend. So I'm excited to go to like a Publix in a normally priced place and just yeah. buy a normal. Do cake. they have
0: Publix in Boston yet? Do you know? I think so, but I don't know. Yeah, because it started in Florida. That's where mm-hmm. we first found out about Publix. And I was like, what is this witchcraft? You yeah. know, and I'd been in New Jersey for a while yep. for college. So yep. we had Wegmans there. Yep. There's actually a rumor that Charlotte's getting a Wegmans. So I'm really excited about that. Fancy. I know. I know. Well, but
1: Jen, <laughs> you, you have forgotten to, to talk about the most exciting part of your whole week, which is, I don't know, you're going to Turks and Caicos tomorrow.
0: Uh- oh. Kristen, listen, 24 (laughs) – I have 24 hours of wood to chop between now and then. There is so much that I have to get done. I can't even think about it. I have a full client tour today of, like – start to finish showing someone homes all around Charlotte. So like, (laughs) yeah, the thought of packing, packing for me happens at 5am the morning of, I don't know, these people who are like, Oh, I'm going to start packing for a trip the week before. I'm sorry. That's a sign of a sociopath. Like that is American (laughs) psycho nonsense. We pack 5am. It is an absolute panic. Throw everything that you do not conceivably need in a suitcase and like wrap two pairs of shoes around my neck and sprint to the airport. That's like how I like to do things. That's the same. I think we already established that procrastination is the name of the game with me. Same. And it's funny, I was texting one of my college roommates this morning, and I, I think the part of me that gets stressed out when I have an overpacked day died during COVID. Like, I don't feel that emotion anymore of like, oh, this day might be too hectic for me to handle. And I don't know if this is a survival skill or if part of me is emotionally dead inside. <laughs> but I'm just like, oh, I have too many things to get done that I could possibly do, so I'll just model through. Yep. <laughs> yep. B plus A minus performance and uh, call it a day. (laughs)
1: Well, this will be an A-plus performance, because I know you are the one who is uh, who is going to be taking us through the capital markets division. I know we were initially <laughs> going to start with sales and trading, but uh, yeah, we're going to, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we, so, we've made a bit of
0: a, of a detour here, and, and yeah. I hope I'm up to the task, because we're going to be talking about a division of the bank that I never actually worked in. Mm-hmm. So uh, please be patient, guys. If we get some of this stuff slightly wrong, know that we've just done a gross oversimplification for purposes of understanding, and, and go easy on us, OK? Yes. So, But look, here, today
1: we are moving beyond the investment banking division and we're going to do a deep dive into the parts of the bank that work with the capital markets. And look, this can be confusing because when we say capital markets, we are not yet talking about sales and trading. So this is a group that kind of straddles
0: the investment banking division and the sales and trading division. Yeah, exactly. And I We thought it made sense after last week's episode to start with the capital markets component of the bank because it felt like we couldn't really jump into the sales and trading division to explain how bonds trade in the secondary market without first explaining how bonds originate in the first place, right? Like how they are issued in the primary market. Right. And sales and trading is so big and varied and complex that we figured, hey, let's keep today brief and save up a lot of that complicated material for our next episode (laughs) after we've laid the groundwork here.
1: Also, we have a great mix of questions that we've gotten on Instagram that we, I promise, will tackle in this episode and next episode. So please keep the questions coming. And if we don't touch on your questions today,
0: we definitely will do a follow up to this. Yes, yes. Okay. So to recap, um, for those of you just tuning in, um, (laughs) previously on the Wall Street Skinny, uh, we spoke in episode four about, you know, what is the investment banking division? And if you guys haven't listened to that episode yet, please go back and quickly listen because it's so critical to understand multiple divisions of the bank. Even if you think, you know, you're only interested in one of them or none of them, (laughs) depending on who's listening. (laughs) Um, Just because investment banking and sales and trading are really like two sides of the same coin. One can't really exist or fully function without the other division of the bank. Yeah, the key difference between them is that everything in the investment banking division starts in the private markets.
1: And actually, sorry, and, oh, Jen, can, can you, you just hold to... up and quickly explain what you mean by the private markets? Yeah. Oh,
0: okay. Great question. Great question. By private markets, we mean two parties trying to accomplish a goal between themselves. So in our example last week, we used the case of one company, Amazon, buying another company, which was Whole Foods in that case. Right, right, right.
1: Yeah. And these transactions are private because if anyone in the public had knowledge that a merger was going to happen, especially before it was actually made public, there could be a serious impact. So you might buy a ton of Whole Foods stock, betting that the price is going to go up right after Amazon announced it was going to acquire it. This, by the way, is called insider trading and in the most recent episode of succession Ooh, oh yeah. s- sorry actually spoiler so please fast forward a minute if you haven't yet seen episode three of this last season um but you might have heard hugo confess to kendall that his daughter had sold tons of shares of waystar royco after she found out that logan roy had died right and this right, was right. before
0: it was public right and and By the Mm -hmm. way, I think that that last episode of Succession with the funeral was one of the best episodes of television I've seen in a while.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it was so good. But yeah, so that is what ultimately Kendall's able to blackmail Hugo with because Mm -hmm. this is, again, an example of insider trading, which is just a huge (laughs) no-no. And actually, when I was working in investment banking, I had a coworker who had bought stock in some company like a long time ago, and then he happened to get staffed on a deal for that company. But because he was staffed on this deal, and now he had insider knowledge, he was barred from being able to buy or sell the stock. So in the bank, the compliance division has like super, super strict rules. And mm-hmm. so you can't trade in or out of certain names if you are staffed on something. Uh, and unfortunately for him, the company's stock price started to plummet. It was actually oh not doing well. That's why they ultimately hired us. And uh, so anyway, my poor coworker <laughs> had to watch as his investment just collapsed because he wasn't allowed to touch it.
0: Oh my God, um, poor guy. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, anything that happens in the investment banking division tends to be categorized as private. And the sales and trading division deals more with the public markets. Although, by the way, you are still heavily restricted in what Mm -hmm. you can and cannot trade in your personal accounts when you work in sales and trading. But you just tend not to have as much inside information about companies. Uh, But again, so when we say the public markets, this is where debt, meaning loans of all different types, and equity, which is ownership, shares, in companies – that's where all of that stuff gets traded in the secondary market. But we have a lot of wood to chop it to before we can get there. Right. So that's why we're starting here today. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. Uh, so and look, I think the best way to tackle this is to follow the journey of a client. So specifically this case, we're going to continue our story of our friends at Amazon, who we spoke about in last week's episode from the investment banking division and see what happens downstream. Right. 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 They, yeah, they want to buy means- Whole Foods. They need to pay for Whole Foods. So how do they do that? Absolutely. It makes a ton of sense.
0: Um, And in reality, guys, very few clients will interact with both divisions of the bank in equal measures. We're just going to use a very basic example to illustrate a point. Mm -hmm. So we want to show you how our friends at Amazon, again, they've made this decision to buy Whole Foods. They are now going to deal with the other arms of the bank. And before we get to sales and trading, we have to make a pit stop first in a division called the Capital Markets Division. And the Capital Markets Division kind of straddles the Investment Banking and Sales and Trading Division. Mm -hmm. People who work in capital markets spend their time with one foot in the private markets, and another in the public markets. Yeah. And another point I want to make is that
1: the capital markets division may not actually be its own division at a lot of banks. Uh, so it often rolls up into IBD. Although I personally always thought it was its own division, um, and I probably was wrong. No, I might. So it, who knows, uh, depending yeah. on the bank. But we, we are not experts in how banks organize their divisions. We have some. Decent knowledge here, but to keep
0: things simple, we are going to treat this as its own division just for simplicity's sake. Exactly. And if you decide to go into the capital markets area of a bank, there's a variety of groups that you might choose from. First, you need to decide whether you want to work in the debt capital markets, which deals with loans,
1: Sometimes also,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah, and sometimes also called fixed income capital
1: markets or FICM. So the abbreviation. Ooh, I've never heard FICM. Yeah, or FICM. (laughs) F-I-C-M. For
0: fixed income capital markets. FICM. I feel like we need to put an explicit rating on this episode for saying FICM. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right, so there's the debt capital markets or or, (laughs) (laughs) and the equity capital markets, which we tend to abbreviate as ECM. Uh, But we're going to pick up with our example from last week of Amazon buying Whole Foods. And because Amazon decided to borrow the money to pay for Whole Foods, we are going to start today on the debt side only of the capital markets, which is where companies borrow money and then flow through eventually to what's called the Fixed Income Sales and Trading Division, which is where all debt is traded in the public markets. Yes. And then in
1: a subsequent deep dive, we will tackle the equity capital markets, which is where things like initial public offerings, in other words, IPOs. So if you think of Snapchat, for example, they went public in 2017. Um, And then we'll get to the Equity Sales and Trading Division, which is where those stocks that are now available – actually trade in the markets once they're made public. So now you can buy and sell shares of Snapchat
0: because it is public. Right, right, right. But back to debt. Um, mm-hmm. So within the debt capital markets, bankers are helping companies borrow money. And there are different types of companies, right, guys? There are really strong big, well-capitalized, meaning companies that have a lot of cash, they have a great business model, companies. And then there's companies where you're like, are these guys going to stay in business for the next five (laughs) minutes? Um, So companies are typically organized by how risky a borrower they are, which is what we'll get into in a bit. Um, And there are also different ways to borrow money. So bankers may specialize in one type of funding versus another. Um, okay. So in order to explain this, let's let's walk through our example. So back to Amazon from last week. Kristen, can you uh, recap? <laughs> yes. So just
1: to recap, we discussed how Amazon decided to buy Whole Foods for $13.7 billion. The investment bankers right, are helping them as their buy-side advisors, that was like Goldman, for example, um, help them figure out how much to pay for the company and how to finance that acquisition. And in Amazon's case, they chose to borrow $13.7 billion of debt.
0: Right, so here we go. So the capital markets division, the way I think of it, I think of it as like a little baby bond nursery. Aww, (laughs) little baby bond, so cute. No, it's true, right? So when your kids come up to you and ask you, like, "Mommy, where do where do baby bonds come from?" Now you can tell them, you know, (laughs) this is this is where debt comes from. Um, The debt capital markets is where debt, specifically corporate debt. Originates. Mm. So the securities that we trade in the public markets, they have to come from somewhere, right? And this is where they're born. And Jen, I know you did a video
1: on this on our social media, but can you walk us through the basic mechanics of a loan before we get into any other type of debt issuance?
0: Yeah, 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 great point. Okay, so let's stop right here and talk about the basic mechanics of a loan, the simplest form of debt, really. Um, again, Amazon's borrowing $13.7 billion, and that's not something we all do every no. day, right? So let's think in, in smaller terms about something you might deal with in your day-to-day life, like a student loan, right? So if you want to go to school, but you don't have the money to pay for it now, and you are willing to pay more for it in the future, you might borrow, say, $100,000, and you agree to pay it back in 10 years. Now, over the course of that 10 years that you're borrowing the money, the person who lent you that money does not have access to that money, meaning they can't spend it, they can't invest it, and they can't make it grow. And and not to mention, they can't keep
1: up with inflation. So in a normal environment, as time goes on, things get more expensive. So right. like, dude, today, eggs cost $11. <laughs> I swear they were, you know, $3 two years ago. It's insane. So yeah, when you get $100 back in 10 years, you're not going to be
0: able to do as much with it as you could do with it now. Right. It'll be worth less than it is today. That's, exactly. that's our friend, the time value of money. Mm-hmm. Um, that's such a good point. And inflation is a critical concept that we'll get to later, but I- I'm glad we touched on it now. So the result is that the lender who is lending you hundred thousand dollars, they need to be compensated for all of this in the form of interest. And, and what is interest? Um, Kristen, I know you hate that I make this joke, but I always joke that it's like someone asking you, like, hey, can I borrow money? And you're like, well, how are you going to make it interesting for me? And thank God you guys can't see me because I actually have a little dance with my shoulders that I do. (laughs) Anyways. Um. Yeah, no, and
1: my, for example, like my student loans back when I borrowed them, I think this was like the early 2000s and they were at 5.625%. So that's how, you know, I was making it interesting to the lender as I was paying them 5.625%. Right, right, right.
0: And okay, since I'm going to do a little math live on the air here, Guys, we're going to simplify it to 5%. Uh, Kristen, you're welcome. You just refinanced. Congratulations. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's pretend in your case that you made regular interest payments of 5%. So that's $5,000 every year on your $100,000 loan over the life of the loan. Then at the end of 10 years, when the loan ended, which is called its maturity, you were expected to repay the entire $100,000. I I love
1: how this is all past tense because I can't believe that it's been over 10 years. And in fact, I think it
0: was 20 years since I took out those two loans. Oh my God. Well, time flies when you're having fun. I was having more fun in college. (laughs) Okay, me too. So look, this is a gross oversimplification because most consumer loans are amortizing. um, And if you guys are students of French, uh, that is a French word that means slowly dying, uh, meaning you are paying back. Yeah, uh, (laughs) because think about it. The principal is going down. Uh, You are paying back small amounts of the principal over the life of the loan as well. So there usually isn't just this like giant balloon payment due at the very end. Like most people don't have $100,000 sitting around in an escrow account waiting to pay back their student loans. But we're Actually, trying to keep this as simple as possible. You know, it's funny, Jen.
1: So what? when you put up the Instagram video, uh, yeah. or I guess TikTok video, I think it started there. But my mom called me and she was like sort of panicked. She's like, Jen has to take down that video. She was so worried that you didn't understand how loans and bonds work. Because she was <laughs> like, Jen didn't mention the principal being paid down over the life of the loan. And so I had to explain to her, I was like, mom, there's this concept called like a bullet payment where just everything gets paid back at the end. Don't worry, I promise. It's not wrong. Anyway, it was <laughs> no. really funny. She was like, no, just take it down.
0: Well, it's so different, right? Because obviously, most of the bonds that we're talking about probably have prepayment penalties. Uh, and we can uh, we can get to that idea a little bit later. It's so exciting. I don't know about <laughs> that. But. Uh, okay, fair enough. But like thinking about optionality in loan and how it changes the entire convexity profile. Yeah, Jen, we got to slow down. Slow down. Okay, sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, we are nowhere near getting to all of that. Um, but okay, so back to your loan with your 5% interest rate. So listen. Guys, I'm no mathematician, but you may have noticed that from Kristen's standpoint, she ended up paying more than just $100,000 for the cost of her tuition, right? She paid $5,000 in interest every year and then she paid back the total amount of $100,000. So, I mean, listen, <laughs> sucks to be you in this case, Kristen, but like from so the So It's like $150,000 total, right? Yeah. From <laughs> it's the investor standpoint, they're loving it, right? Not only are they getting their $100,000 back, but they're getting your 5% every year over the course of 10 years. They have taken the $100,000 they invested in you and made it grow, right? That makes sense. And the the cool thing about this is anyone can make their money grow like this. You can invest in debt, meaning step into the shoes of a lender. And by lender, I mean the person who is giving away the $100,000 in exchange for interest payments. And you can make your money grow by receiving those interest payments. And then if all goes well, you get your money back. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to our friends at Amazon now. They need to borrow money to buy Whole Foods. They are taking out a loan in essence. So we said last time they didn't just call up their rich uncle and say, hey, like want to lend me $13.7 billion. So how do they actually get that money? They issue debt. And let's walk through that process. So first, what happens is that a bank or a group of banks gets together in something called a syndicate. And sorry,
1: Jen, can you explain what a syndicate is? Because I don't think most people will have heard of that.
0: Full disclosure, okay, whenever I think of a syndicate, I think of all, like, the J.J. Abrams movies (laughs) and shows. Like, I love Alias and Lost and Mission Impossible. And I swear to God, in every single J.J. Abrams movie or show, there is, like, a shadowy group of villains called (laughs) the syndicate. And, like, they're the ones pulling all the strings. Jen, you are are such a nerd. I know. Um, right. But in the banking world, it's it's far less villainy. Mm-hmm. A syndicate is just a group or a team working together. So since Amazon doesn't have one person who's willing to lend them $13.7 billion that they have lying around, we need a team of banks who are willing to get together and pull together a large amount of cash to lend them the money if no one else will. And that's a critical concept that we're just going to keep in the back of our minds. And mm-hmm. this is the syndicate. In the case of Amazon, um, you said the primary buy-side advisor was, was Goldman Sachs last week. Yep. But the group of banks that actually got together to help them borrow this huge sum of money. So it was Goldman, and then they teamed up with Bank of America and J.P. Morgan.
1: Yeah. And actually, so the syndicate, though, they're not the ones who necessarily loan them the money,
0: correct? Right, exactly. So they, they team up to find investors who want to buy Amazon's debt. Amazon's borrowing all this money for, in some cases, loans have different tranches, meaning different segments of different maturities. We'll get into that later. But <laughs> but they were borrowing money for up to 40 years. And Goldman and JP Morgan and Bank of America, they don't necessarily want to tie up a huge amount of money with just Amazon for the next 40 years, right? So what they do is they go and they call all the investors out there. They call your Fidelity, BlackRock, Vanguard, whoever, right? People who manage huge amounts of money for lots of different people. And let's say all these investors have decided that they want to make their money grow by buying debt and receiving interest payments like we talked about anyone can do. Mm -hmm. So the bank is going to try to get them to agree to buy Amazon's debt in the form of bonds. And all a bond is is evidence of a loan. It's
1: not James Bond's last name. Sorry, really. I'm sorry. Bad, yeah, that is the joke.
0: cheesiest joke. I know. I try. I try. <laughs> it's like it's um, like
1: not a dad joke. It's like a mom joke. They're both. Oh bad. my god, I like
0: that. Let's make <laughs> mom jokes great again. Yes. Um, so when Goldman Sachs sells Amazon's bonds to Fidelity, Fidelity is paying cash for the right to receive Amazon's interest payments over time, and they are promised that Amazon's going to repay that cash at the end of the loan, at the bond's maturity.
1: So the syndicate's really just the middleman then.
0: So the syndicate underwrites the loan. So if for some reason the banks can't find enough investors to buy all of Amazon's bonds. The syndicate has implicitly promised to take down the full amount of the debt issuance, all 13.7 billion. Got it. Got it. Okay. So the the price at which they are willing to underwrite Amazon's debt is lower than the price at which they then turn around and sell those bonds to investors. So the difference between the price where they underwrote the loan and then sold the bonds to investors, that's the money that the bank captures as its fee for doing this whole deal.
1: So in other words, if they bought, they would buy it for say, like 98 cents on the dollar and they
0: sell it for 100. You got it, girl. And so the other thing they do is help to price the debt, meaning what is the interest rate that Amazon is going to pay over the life of this loan? And so now we are finally getting to our best friends in the sales and trading arm of the firm. So a whole variety of factors go into determining this price, this rate that someone pays on their debt. But for purposes of our example, we're going to simplify it down to just two factors for the time being, right? So the first question is, how long is the loan? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so we talked about time value of money a little bit earlier, but just think about this, right? As an investor, I or you or whomever, we'd rather have our money back sooner rather than later. So all else being equal, I am going to charge you a higher rate for a longer loan. Right. If you agree to pay me back in like three months, right? I'm going to charge you a lot less than if you can't pay me back for 30 years. All right, so it makes sense.
1: So a 40-year bond would price it, say, like 8%, and a 10-year bond would price it, say, like 6%.
0: Sure, yeah. So the, the baseline market rate, For a debt instrument of any given tenor, meaning again, the length of the loan, that is a risk free rate. That's what we're looking at as the baseline rate. And we typically, to find a proxy for a risk free rate, use the rate at which the US government borrows money. Okay? They borrow money via what we call US treasuries. We're gonna talk about this a whole bunch later, right? (laughs) But that is again, the proxy. For our risk-free lending rate,
1: right, and that's that's basically just because the U.S. can print money, right? right. So it's it's risk-free because they can always pay you your money back because they can always
0: print money, right? Exactly. Again, we'll put a pin in this for now, but um, since we've talked about the baseline being our risk-free rate, the second factor that determines how much it's going to cost you to borrow money is how likely are you to pay me back? Right? There was a risk-free rate. And now we need to add an additional component to our interest rate that captures how risky you are as a borrower. Right. So that's kind
1: of like, I'm going to go back to myself because I always do, but it be <laughs> like my credit score. So if you apply for a mortgage or a student loan or whatever, there is a credit score uh, right. that, that takes into account, have you made all of your payments in the past? And I was so angry because April 2020, that's this whole COVID situation, right? I fled to Boston and I wasn't getting mail. I missed one payment and I swear that one payment has been haunting me and my credit score went down. And anyway... I'm sorry, Um,
0: but you're right. So like in the the big world of debt, every borrower, whether it's an individual or a corporation, has like a credit score, right? A different level of riskiness as a borrower. And this is super topical right now. But again, the classic theory was always that the U.S. government was essentially a risk-free borrower because the US treasury can literally print money, right? We classically thought of them as perpetually able to pay back money that they borrow, right? And when you can't pay back money that you borrow, it's called defaulting on a loan. So if you can print money, how can you default on a loan, right? right. But you but you can still lose a
1: lot of money on a treasury, which owning is owning
0: treasuries. Owning sure.
1: treasuries. And I feel like that finally got hammered into my head with the whole collapse of Silicon Valley Bank because they had this massive, I think it was a massive $2 billion loss. And it was because they had invested in treasuries. And right. so we'll talk later. Um, Jen will do a whole video on price and yields and all that kind of fun <laughs> stuff. But yeah. the point is, like, even if someone's not going to default, you still can lose a lot of money
0: on an investment in a, in a treasury that's seemingly risk-free. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just a hundred percent true. You can lose money on pretty much any investment Mm -hmm. under circumstances. Under certain circumstances. So just because the U.S. Treasury isn't likely to default on its debt, that has nothing to do with whether or not you can lose money on your investment. Um, That'll be very important as we ultimately transition into talking about the trading of these bonds in the sales and trading arm. But the key concept I want to make clear here is that historically, any debt issued by the U.S. government, again, it's thought of having a very, very low risk of default. Actually, they historically had a triple A credit rating, which is basically the highest Credit score you can get, <laughs> yeah. Until they got downgraded.
1: And actually, Jen, fun fact: Do you know what three companies are AAA rated now? In other words, rated as less risky somehow than the U.S. government? Um, I it's got to be Apple, right? It is Apple. They actually they were only recently upgraded, though. So it, I think it was in 2021, like at the end. Um, so yes, they did get upgraded to AAA. Who else? Is it Amazon? Who we're talking about now? <laughs> it is not Amazon. Nope. Oh, I don't know who else. It is Johnson & Johnson and Microsoft.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, But yeah, so there are credit rating companies. Historically, the big ones are Moody's and S&P, and they assign a risk of default to all institutional borrowers. So our friends at Amazon, because they have such a healthy business model. Well, I mean, I think that you and I could probably single-handedly keep the business alive given how much we order from them daily. Seriously, right? Um, But yeah, because they have money streaming in from all angles and they have a ton of cash on their books... They would be considered, you know, a very creditworthy borrower with a low risk of default. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And then the stronger the demand or appetite from investors to own Amazon's credit, the lower the interest rate that they will have to pay will be, right? Mm -hmm. So think about a company by comparison that's like on the verge of bankruptcy, right? Say Bed Bath & Beyond, if you've been following what they've been going through lately, you know, they have a much higher risk of default. So if you're lending Bed Bath & Beyond money, you might be like a wee bit nervous that you're never going (laughs) to see that money again. Mm -hmm. So you're going to want to receive a much higher interest payment to compensate you for the risk that you're never going to get the money you loan them back in the future. You know, with Amazon, by comparison, that risk is low. So you're much more willing to lend them money at a lower rate.
1: Yeah, and this
0: is probably a good time to
1: mention that companies' ratings are broadly segmented into two categories. So you have investment grade, And then you also have high yields, which is sometimes referred to as junk. So you can Mm -hmm. kind of get a sense of what you're investing in there. Uh, But investment-grade companies would be like the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Apple, right? Those are the less risky companies. And therefore investors don't have to be compensated at very high rates uh, in exchange for lending them money.
0: Right. And Uh, then companies that are riskier, mm -hmm. lenders or investors, they want to receive a higher interest rate or what we call a yield on their money to compensate them for the low likelihood that you're ever going to get repaid at the end. So that's why we call companies with low credit ratings high yield.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, And the different credit ratings of these companies also impacts like how bankers in the debt capital markets division uh, segment themselves into different groups. Mm-hmm. So some groups in debt capital markets, they focus on investment grade companies. So again, meaning like lower risk.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: uh, the other will focus on high yields, aka the higher risk companies. Um, and this group focused on the sort of super high risk companies is often called the Leverage Finance Group or LevFin.
0: And you mentioned them last week, right, mm-hmm. as being one
1: of the groups that's a decent feeder for private equity firms, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, because this is the group that helps companies that are much riskier, raise debt. So like those companies that are on often bought by private equity firms and those leveraged buyouts, right? Leveraged, a lot of debt. Um, so yeah, so that is exactly in the world of, you know, the bond world. This is the category that, as we said, is below investment grade. It's that high yield junk, exactly. Uh, but not to get too technical, because this is beyond the scope of what we want to talk about here. But I, I don't want to lose people uh, by getting into a like kind of a boring detour. But there are a bunch of different groups that can fall under Debt Capital Markets or FICM, FICM, whatever. Ficum. <laughs> Including uh, product groups, so project finance and convertible debt. That's actually where I worked. There's also like structured products. Again, this is a whole other conversation right, for a later right, right. date, but I just don't want to like
0: not. We've simplified them. so much. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's good that we touched on those things. Yeah. Um, but okay. So back to Amazon. So the interest rate that Amazon has to pay on its debt, just to recap, is going to be determined in part by one how long until Amazon pays back the loan and what the prevailing risk-free rate for a loan of that length is. And then two, we add in a component to reflect how risky Amazon is as a borrower. So let's do some simple math, right? Let's say the risk-free rate for a 10-year US Treasury is 5%. Amazon's issuing 10-year debt. And Amazon is a strong borrower. So maybe we'll add 1% to that interest rate to account for their creditworthiness. Their total interest rate on their bonds is now going to be 6%. Are we following along? Yep.
1: Okay. I'm glad you could do the math correctly. I tried to do a a calculation yesterday in a video and I did it it wrong. So, (laughs) yes.
0: Okay. So now we know the basics of a corporate bond. Let's pause and zoom back out for a bit. So remember I said at the beginning that in the sales and trading arm of the bank, Debt, meaning loans of all different types, and equity, ownership, shares in corporations, right? That gets traded in the secondary market. Let's focus on the debt side right now, since we've been talking about debt the whole time. (laughs) We call this section of the sales and trading division that deals with debt the fixed income division. And that's because we typically think of an interest rate on a given bond as fixed, meaning unchanging, okay? And most borrowers make the same interest payment right at regular, unchanging intervals over the course of a loan. So the term fixed income is just shorthand for the side of the markets devoted to debt.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because I remember actually when I went to one of my first info sessions for Morgan Stanley, like way back in college, and they were mentioning the fixed income division. I was just like, what
0: the heck is that? So yeah. hopefully
1: people, if they don't well, have if as you much ever knowledge, hear like, like if you guys to have
0: yeah. boomer, I don't know who our audience is, parents, grandparents, if you are a boomer yourself, you probably hear about retirees living on a fixed income. Yep. And they are just living on the interest payments of their investments if they're, you know, in that situation. Um, But yeah, so the fixed income markets are where debt-based securities like U.S. treasuries, those bonds that are issued by the U.S. government, corporate bonds, which we call credit, right, since the creditworthiness of the borrower is the critical differentiator between those bonds and U.S. government bonds, and things like mortgage-backed securities and stuff. That's where these securities trade all day long. Mm -hmm. And guys, one thing that I cannot emphasize enough is that these markets are incomprehensibly large. Not only are there trillions of dollars in outstanding loans, but there are trillions and trillions more in derivatives that replicate the cash flows of these actual uh, tangible... Jed,
1: we're not ready for derivatives yet.
0: I know, I know, I know. We will be ready soon. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so back to Amazon. So the syndicate on the debt capital market side is talking to Amazon and the investment bankers all day long, right? We've established that the investment bankers are really concerned with making sure that Amazon's as happy as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the the guys in the debt capital markets group are doing is they are doing something called building the book. And to do that, they are working hand in hand with salespeople in the fixed-income sales and trading division. And these salespeople cover the big investors like Fidelity and BlackRock and Vanguard, who we mentioned earlier, right? They are finding out how many bonds those buyers want to buy the moment the debt is issued. And if it's a hot deal, meaning that, you know, this is a credit that everyone wants to buy – these salespeople are all putting in orders and clamoring for position to get as many of the bonds as possible for their clients. In fact, like one of the measures of how successful a corporate bond issuance is, is how many times, quote unquote, oversubscribed a deal is, right? I mean, think about like when you board a flight and you hear that, you know, they, they uh, make that announcement when you're boarding and they're like, uh, we've oversold the flight. Uh, we need 10 people to volunteer to get off, right? It's the exact well, they, same thing. Yeah,
1: and they, I don't know if all all flights do this, but a lot of times, I mean, this was back, whatever, 10 years ago. I mean, I used to fly all the time and Mm -hmm. they would offer money for people to volunteer to not take the flight home. And I was on this one flight and they were up to a thousand dollars to volunteer
0: to take the next flight. Absolutely. It's the same way with deal pricings, right? The more demand there is for these bonds, the lower an interest rate investors will be willing to accept for taking on the risk of that client's credit. They're like, I'll, I'll do this at a lower rate, right? Yep. Cause they want those bonds. They're willing to pay a higher price, AKA accept a lower yield. Yep. Um, and again, they know that they're likely buying a bond. If they know everyone's trying to get a piece of this, they're likely buying a bond. They can then turn around and sell it at a higher price because there's more demand than there is supply. Right. And the client, Amazon in this case, is going to be super happy to hear that there's, you know, 45 billion worth of demand or whatever for their bonds when they're only issuing 13.7.
1: Yeah. Yes. No, that, that makes sense. So the investor demand impacts the ultimate price of the bond. Mm -hmm. And so they can raise the price on the bonds before the issuance in order to reflect that demand. So actually let's go back to something that I understand, which is Ticketmaster. right? They should have done something like this with Taylor Swift in order to prevent the utter disaster that ensued when she announced her tour. So We So my husband and I tried to get tickets in that pre-sale. We got selected for the lottery. We were very excited. My five-year-old daughter is obsessed with Taylor Swift. And so we told her, she's like, I want to go see Taylor Swift for my birthday. Great. So we get on, spend two hours, don't get tickets. And now she asks us every single day if we can see her for her birthday. And so she thinks that these are easily obtainable. They are $2,000, right? That is supply (laughs) and demand in action. There is not enough supply. And so you can buy tickets for $2,000 a ticket. I'm not buying a $2,000 ticket for my five-year-old to go. Yeah. Yeah, no, See, I remember totally.
0: our pair was like frantically hitting the refresh button on her browser every single minute for like 72 hours straight. Yeah. Uh, but exactly. the What's called the price talk on a to-be-issued bond, it'll change as demand builds or wanes. Yeah. And by price here, we mean the rate that you are paying for the loan. So the um, interest rate. Exactly, exactly. So, okay, so now we get to the day of the deal pricing, okay? Meaning this is the day that this loan closes, the big deal that everybody's been working on for all this time, right? Everyone's very tense. So, you know, you probably have like the CFO or the treasurer, a whole bunch of really important bigwigs at Amazon, and they're probably on a huge conference call with all the syndicate bankers. The syndicate bankers are then in turn on the phone in the other ear with the traders in fixed income sales and trading. And they are watching the interest rate market move all day long. Sorry, Jen. Can you explain a little more on like what they're watching and why they're watching it? Yes, yes, yes. So remember like two minutes ago before Taylor Swift, we talked about the trillions and trillions (laughs) and trillions and trillions of of dollars in debt out there, right? There's a whole litany of market participants who are buying and selling debt in the secondary markets at high frequency all day long. Mm -hmm. Supply and demand, like we just talked about with our friend Taylor, causes interest rates to go up or down. And- We'll get into the basics of bond math at another time, but let's just remember this, okay? When rates go down, it is less expensive for Amazon to borrow money. Mm -hmm. When rates go up, it's more expensive for them to borrow money because they are paying a higher interest rate over the life of their loan. Yeah.
1: And back to me. I feel like everything. It's always back to me. I sound (laughs) like the most conceited person. But no, so with our mortgage, we have really bad timing with things, which I'll talk about at some other point, but we somehow were able to lock in uh interest rate on a mortgage right before the market dropped by half a percent, which actually translates to a lot of money. But anyway, right. we were watching the 10-year treasury move. market. Yeah. And it, it plummeted. Actually, it's almost down, I think, 75 basis points, which is 0.75%. Anyway, sorry for the little detour, but no, no, just no. Meant that it's more expensive for us now to pay for our house than it would have been had we a waited really good a week. That's a really good point.
0: So the timing of a deal pricing is critical. And so you, in your example, Kristen, you happen to lock in your interest rate Right before ten-year rates rallied, meaning yep. they went down. The went most that they had gone to 3.25%. down three point two five percent. That was the most that they had moved since Lehman. I know. Okay, that was the biggest intraday move. So your timing is impeccable. Um, I know, Jen. You you
1: say this every single time. When Jen heard that I was trying to buy a house, she's like, "How do we make a trade on this? You should have bought. You, knew, you like, knew we were locking a mortgage. You should have. You should have invested, Jen. I should have done something. I mean, um, you
0: knew, right? But so. You know, even though we had a pretty good idea before the deal prices about what the actual interest rate should be on Amazon's debt, again, between the price talk on their credit and the general range of where U.S. treasuries were trading, and again, we know what the order book looks like. Nothing is firm until the deal actually prices and money changes hands. So, again, everyone's on the phone. And somebody is talking to the trader in the fixed income sales and trading division of one of the banks, specifically the bank who has the right to billing and delivering, but we're not getting into that today. <laughs> uh, and when the time is right, that trader is going to call out a price on the underlying treasury. So again, for a 10-year bond, we're talking about the 10-year on the run U.S. treasury. And that price corresponds to a yield, a rate. And in our example, we were using 5%, Right. So they call it the price. The price corresponds to a yield of 5%. We're then going to add Amazon's credit spread right on top of that, which we called, again, 1% for our example. And voila, we now have a bond with a 6% coupon. Yay. Yay. Congrats. The bond's been born. <laughs> um, so now we can name it. And and now the bonds are free to trade in the open markets, right? They're going to go up in price. They're going to go down in price, depending on a whole number of factors. But yes. that's it. And And this concludes our brief journey through the debt capital markets. Um, And we've ended by talking about our good friends in the fixed income sales and trading division. And we are going to tackle this in much, much, much more detail, uh, (laughs) hopefully in next week's episode. Yes.
1: And actually, while we're here, we probably should just quickly touch on um, with capital markets like who tends to work there and what the exit opportunities are. Oh yeah, totally.
0: Um, So, I mean, the way I think of capital markets and I I do not mean any disrespect with this, but I think of it as like a gateway drug to either the investment banking or sales and trading division. Mm -hmm. Like if you're not ready for the super fast pace of sales and trading, this is a way to get a taste of it without like living and dying every day by a basis point move here or there. It's more project based like banking, but it's also more tied to market hours. So you tend to cut off that tail risk of like tons and tons of late nights and weekends working on deals. Yeah. Um, since it's a smaller division, too, you know, you tend to be less of a specialist and get more exposure to things. True.
1: Yeah. I mean, it can vary because if you're in a products group like I was, so converts or project finance, like you might be very, you might be very specialized in one certain skill. The thing that I liked about it was um, you also were on the trading floor. So you do get that energy, which I mm. always found like really kind of nice. I will say, though, so something to be aware of the exit opportunities are not going to be as wide, if that makes sense. Like there's not as many options. Or as maybe would not be. as just
0: clear cut and cut Yeah, and not as
1: clear cut. I think that's a better way to put it. Then there might be out of say investment banking, or if you were say a trader. So actually when I was working and I was in capital markets, they had a special third year analyst rotation program mm-hmm. in order for analysts who were in capital markets to rotate into investment banking and to get that experience, which Mm -hmm. then would potentially translate to being able to exit. If you wanted to go work at a hedge fund, wanted to go work in private equity, made it a little easier. Um, mm-hmm. but with capital markets, a lot of times people will sort of stay in the bank. Maybe they will exit into other divisions, um, or also like work their way up and get super senior. And
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how I always thought of it as, you know, the division where you kind of start out if you're not sure what's right for you yet. So like you said, a lot of people in capital markets end up making a transition into banking or sales and trading, because think about it, right? Like you've been on the phone with these people all the time. You're networking with them. You're collaborating yeah. with all the people in these Divisions. It's easy to build relationships and find mentors and advocates who can help you with the transition. You know, if you're coming from like a banking group specializing in tech companies, it's hard to wake up one day and be like, "I want to trade mortgage-backed securities." Right? Right. Like, it's it's just not as easy a transition.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned this, and it's true. I also did find that it wasn't that difficult to move within the different groups within the bank. Um, It was harder to move across divisions. With that said, I started in fixed income sales and trading for all of like three months because (laughs) the group I was in happened to like essentially take down the entire uh, economy. But um, I I was able to relatively easily move into uh, capital markets, specifically Mm -hmm. fixed income capital markets, and then ultimately into investment banking because of the relationships that I had with the people that I met through my analyst class. And so that's something that
0: was, was actually nice
1: was being yeah. able to move.
0: And, you know, groups. we, t- we touched a little on exit opportunities or maybe the perceived lack thereof outside the firm. You know, I think you could make an argument for a transition into the private equity world, because listen, mm-hmm. I mean, you are so familiar with the ins and outs of raising capital. Yeah. I mean, maybe you haven't been building LBO, you know, well, actually- buyout models all day, mm-hmm. but like you're doing the L part. All day long, every time.
1: No, the leverage finance group, that actually is often a feeder into private equity firms. And Mm -hmm. this is also like where different banks... So the particular person who specializes in the leverage buyout model sometimes actually is the leverage finance banker in capital oh, markets versus financial sponsors. So mm-hmm. some of these things, they can vary bank to bank. But no, you're totally right. And I mean, the people that I know who are in capital markets, I mean, uh, my brother, he went to work on the asset management side. My husband mm-hmm. went to work for a hedge fund, more on yeah. the capital raising side. So I mean, the exit opportunities are, are still there. So I don't want to mm-hmm. make it sound like you're going to now just work your way up to a senior position in the bank. Um, And also a lot of these banks do want to have the people who become senior have exposure to the other groups. So they probably will have some informal or formal rotational programs for the people who become more senior.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's just, it's just less cut and dry. Um, and it's definitely one of those areas of the bank where if you want to plan a transition immediately outside of the bank, you might just have to do some like strategic resume building and be very deliberate in building your network and getting exposure to as many different types of capital raising or whatever it might be as as possible. But I, I would also say this, that, you know, if you wanted to think about an exit opportunity outside the bank, another good place to go from the capital markets division might be just like a conventional corporate job. You know, like if you throw in some accounting understanding, you could easily position yourself for a transition into a CFO or a treasurer's office.
1: Right. Yeah. I think realistically, yeah, capital markets is more of an incubator for other divisions within the bank. Ah, and And
0: this is a great segue for me to say. Next up, I promise we will at long last be tackling my former home home, the uh, the fixed income sales and trading division in a bit of a deep dive next week yes
1: i'm super excited but uh, friendly reminder keep those questions coming Um, you can send us a direct message on instagram on tiktok and if you do want to send us an email you can do so at questions at wall street skinny Uh, again that is questions at wall street skinny we are technically the wall street skinny but we wanted to minimize the number of letters you have to type in so questions at wall street skinny
0: thanks guys Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you.
1: Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more.